0: Good morning. I'm Pastor Glenn Thomas. Welcome to our Sunday morning Bible study here at St. Paul's Lutheran Church in De Pair. We welcome all who are here with us in our gymnasium. We also welcome all who are listening in the greater St. Louis area on KFUO 850 AM, and we welcome all who are listening online. could be anywhere in the world, I guess, at uh, KFUO.org. Welcome. Uh, for those of you who are here in the gymnasium, we have Bibles over on the side as we continue our look at the Gospel of Luke. Uh, we may or may, we probably will not get out of Luke 1 today. I was going to say, we're, <laughs> we're uh, doing this a little bit more in depth. Uh, for those of you who are here, also, you'll notice the floor looks a little different here in the gymnasium. The tarp is down on the floor. That is the unmistakable sign that the uh, rummage sale for our youth uh, ministry is going to be starting this week. Uh, in fact, for those that are listening in the uh, St. Louis area, uh, the shopping days are Wednesday, this coming Wednesday, the 16th, from 8 a.m. until 2 p.m., Friday the 18th from 8 a.m. to 2 p.m., and Saturday the 19th from 8 a.m. to noon. So a little commercial there, a little shameless plug uh, for our rummage sale uh, on KFUO. All right, with that, let's begin with a word of prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, Amen. Lord God, Heavenly Father, we come before you thanking you for the joy that is ours through your Son, Jesus Christ, and all that he has accomplished for us. Most importantly, laying down his life as payment in full for all of our sin, and that through him we have the forgiveness of sin and everlasting life in your presence. We thank you also for your word, the knowledge you have revealed to us about yourself and about the way to salvation. And as we continue to explore that word, we pray your blessing upon us today that your Holy Spirit might continue to guide us and lead us into all truth. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, as I said, we're in Luke 1. And uh, just to review just a little bit, we've already seen a bit of introduction uh, to the gospel itself, who Luke uh, we think was and what we do know about him, at least, uh, from the scriptures. Uh, We saw uh, the introduction to the book and why he is writing, to whom he is writing. We saw the angel Gabriel uh, deliver the message to Zechariah that uh, he and Elizabeth were going to be parents, even at the advanced uh, age that Elizabeth was and had been barren up until that point. And remember, Zechariah's response was one of unbelief, uh, for which he then was unable to speak, and will be so until... We'll see coming up uh, the birth and circumcision and naming uh, of John the Baptist. And just think about that. Every time he would try to speak, he would be reminded, wouldn't he, of of his unbelief in the the promise of God. Um, Then we saw, um, in fact, that uh, we're going to see that six months later, uh, I'm I'm sorry, Elizabeth does conceive, and then six months later, when she is six months along, we kind of left off last week, with Mary, who's also been told that she is going to give birth to a son, is going to go and visit her cousin Elizabeth when Elizabeth again is six months along in her pregnancy. And that's kind of where we left off, where Pastor Wade left off last week. Uh, I know that he read verses 39 through 45. I think he said he had three minutes left, uh, when he got to those verses. So not a whole lot of time to do much there. So let's, uh, Start there, and uh, we'll uh, not only read it again just to refresh our memory, but we can do quite a bit in terms of these verses. I think they have a, this an incredible event here that takes place, and I think has a lot of implications for us today, a lot of application. So, let's start with verse 39, and let's read. I'll read the whole thing through 39 through 45. Again, the account of the visitation, uh, Mary visiting Elizabeth. In those days. that the mother of my Lord should come to me. For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. All right, so we notice that it's uh, six months. uh, We've heard just before uh, that it was six months ahead, uh, Elizabeth's, Pregnancy from Mary's. And notice that up until this point now, John the Baptist and Jesus have both been announced. Uh, Their their coming has been announced. Now it's time for the two of them to meet. And now it's time for these two cousins, Mary and Elizabeth, to meet. And that's exactly what happens. Um, We we see in the text that she goes with haste, or she goes hurriedly. there's different uh, understandings of this go, this going quickly obviously just on a very human level she has been told that her cousin elizabeth who is advanced in years is expecting so there is that part of the excitement that she feels for her cousin but then think also of what she has been told right and so she goes quickly it says there uh, to visit with her cousin, Elizabeth. And so just on a purely human level, uh, there is that, that natural sense of excitement. Um, you know, kind of brings out, and we don't know the exact age difference, but remember that uh, it was that Elizabeth was barren and uh, was unable to conceive. Mary is betrothed, not yet married, and both of them, through God's intervention are having children. And so God is working out his plan with these two very humble uh, people. Um, we don't know much of anything about Mary's family at this point. Uh, she, we don't know who else, if anyone, went with her. There is a reference in John 19, verse 25, of a sister of Mary and some Uh, I'll just tell you right now, the Roman Catholics translate that usually as referring to another Mary, not the Mary, not the Virgin Mary. Uh, So we just don't know about her family. Uh, Does she just take off? Uh, Where's Joseph in all of this? Does she have any siblings that go with her or not? Uh, There is the place that she goes, notice, is not named. The city is not named. It is uh, referred to as a town... uh, hill country to a town in Judah. Now the hill country is a ridge of, I would call mountains here. One thing when you go to, when you go to Israel, the, the things they call uh, mountains, uh, it, it's, they're, they're raised areas, okay, down the middle of the country. It's like a ridge that runs down the middle of the country. And remember now, what was Zechariah's occupation? Priest. And so there's a lot of speculation as to where exactly this town was and which town it was. Uh, there's The um, sort of favorite is a town called Hebron, H-E-B-R-O-N, which is south of Jerusalem and still in that hill country. Again, I want to say, we're not told, so this is just speculation. The reason why it is sort of the odds-on favorite with some of the scholars is, Is that back in Joshua 2, verse 11? It was given to the priests. It was a town that was designated for them. And it is about 18 miles from Jerusalem, but guess how far it is from Nazareth? About 81 miles. 81 miles. So if that is it, Mary is making quite a long trip. Of she's going to have another uh, trip coming up uh, before too very long as well. Now, again, we don't know. Did she travel alone? Uh, there's speculation that she traveled in a caravan, which is the way a lot of them used to travel back at that time. There was, you know, safety in numbers. But again, we're just not told. But at any rate, she goes in haste and is going with the intention of seeing Elizabeth, sharing with her the news that she has to share seeing what she has already been told by Gabriel uh, regarding her cousin Elizabeth and the fact that she is pregnant uh, as well. Now, in these verses, one point I wanted to make is that it's easy for us to slip into the old um, temptation to really elevate Mary in these verses, that she's the one doing all the action. She's the one who initiates the visit. She's the one who has the, the Magnificat coming up. But let's remember, it is not Mary herself for the sake of Mary. It is Mary because of, quite frankly, who Mary is carrying right now, the Savior of the world. That's what makes this so special. And notice that things happen in this text as a result, not of Mary necessarily, but of, again, who she is carrying. Okay? And so we want to keep that in mind uh, as we go through. Uh, so this is the, obviously the present, but yeah, a lot of uh, the comment was thank you. But the, uh, Samaria, being the the territory in between Galilee and and uh, Judea, a lot of them went around Samaria. As a matter of fact, uh, you'll recall when Jesus sets his face toward Jerusalem, which we'll see in Luke nine fifty one, he does go through Samaria, and uh, he's not uh, he's not received warmly there. And then that's when uh, James and John want to call down thunder on the Samaritans. <laughs> that's where they get the nickname Sons of Thunder. Uh, they, wanted, they wanted to torch them. Uh, anyway, so, but yeah, it, 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 they would many times go around Samaria, which would, of course, even increase the, the, the length of the trip. Uh, now, verse 41, I really want to spend a little time on this. Verse 41, when Elizabeth heard the greeting... Uh, John the Baptist leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit this is re- there, there are, let me just say there are some critical scholars who say, "Oh, this was just a coincidence that uh, Jesus came in Mary, and you know just coincidentally John the Baptist leaped in uh, elizabeth's womb uh, no I, I think th- a couple things number one. It's the fact that Luke has it reported twice. He reports it, first of all, in verse 41, as it actually occurs, and then Elizabeth repeats it later on. Uh, Let's see, that's in verse, is that 45? Uh, Oh, yeah, 44. uh, Baby, and she has a leap for joy. So the fact that Luke reports it twice would seem to make a causal relationship here in other words this leaping is not just something that randomly happened uh it, it is it is connected there is a connectedness here between coming into the presence of Jesus who is uh, you know there's a lot of speculation how old is how old is Jesus at this point not very right because she went in haste And here's the thing. If Elizabeth was six months along, and we're going to see at the end of the Magnificat, it it just says at the very end that Mary stayed three months with her. So she must have went very soon after this Annunciation and went quickly. Okay. So, uh, now, turn back, just for a moment, if you keep your finger here, turn back to Luke 1, 14 to 15, and we'll see how this is also a fulfillment of prophecy, which I think even strengthens the case that this was not just some coincidental, you know, two things that happened. No, there is a causal relationship here. In uh, Luke 1, 14 and 15, uh, this is Gabriel now predicting what to, to Zechariah what is going to happen here. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. And he must not drink wine or strong drink. Remember we talked about the Nazarite vow, but here's the important one. And he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. So there we have Gabriel predicting that even while he is still within his mother's womb, he is going to, John the Baptist now, be filled with the Holy Spirit. Okay? Uh, I think that was taken from the ESV. You have a different wording from that? What's that? NIV. NIV, okay, yeah. NIV. That's the same. Right, 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 okay. Now, um, so again, we would take these to be causal related. This, The Holy Spirit working at the coming of Jesus in Mary to Elizabeth bearing John the Baptist. Now let me stop here. I think there's an important application to be made here. Can anybody see a connection between what happens here in Luke 1 and infant baptism? Yes? What's the connection? Yes. It is. We would say here is an example of the Holy Spirit working in a child that is yet unborn even yet unborn. Now, there are some who will say that an infant cannot believe. It's impossible for an infant to believe. Uh, We would say here clearly, and and many would say, this is an example right here of John the Baptist believing yet before he is even born. Uh, The people who say infants cannot believe Are wanting an infant to be able to somehow articulate a a, you know a faith that they believe well that is not capable of happening yet, but that does not mean that the same God who brings about an immaculate conception and who is there for Elizabeth to bear a child cannot bring about the very same thing as the the angel said with God nothing. Is impossible again. Obviously, an infant cannot articulate a faith, and so this is one of the verse. This is by far the only verse, obviously, but it is one of the ones that I really like personally uh, when we talk about infant baptism, because I think it does fly in the face of those who say that you know an infant somehow cannot believe. And of course, our our brothers and sisters in Baptist and and assemblies of God and other. Churches would say that you wait until you get to this age of accountability, which is usually in the area of 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, somewhere in there, when certainly a child by that time is able to articulate. But again, we just don't see that in the scriptures. In fact, we see that, of course, as we confess, all are born sinful and unclean and are in need of the forgiveness that comes in and through holy baptism. What did you have Exactly, exactly. Yeah, it's the Holy Spirit that is doing this work and bringing an infant or anyone else. You know, frankly, I always say that isn't it just as great a miracle when the Holy Spirit brings an adult to faith after after you've had all this time of a hardened, you know, hardening heart and all all the world's influences on you, uh just just as much. Let me ask you about another application of this. If you and I, I will admit, I, I I like this, but I admit it's not um, perhaps the most direct. Um, can you see an application to stillborn children or miscarried children? What's so? Some of you are shaking, are nodding your heads. The Holy Spirit. I, I have actually used this in the past, and I, I, I have to say in the end, we leave this in God's Direction. We don't pretend to you know to pronounce anything. Um, I always say I think we have the the hope of our compassionate, loving God who in Luke uh, we'll take a look at this a little bit later, but Luke eighteen said that the little children you know belong in the kingdom of God, but uh, I was trying to find this. I thought I had seen this in Luther, and I was digging for it, could not find it. Luther did by the way, write it. A pamphlet on miscarriage and to parents who had had miscarried and stillborn children. But here's the point. During the pregnancy, mother comes into the services of God's house, brings that unborn child into the presence of their Savior, Jesus Christ, the Word of God, same Word of God, and the Holy Spirit. And I, I maybe you think I'm irresponsible, but I, I do say that to, to people who have experienced this. And I think this again is a verse that can bring great comfort and great encouragement to people who have that have had that experience in their lives. And so I I couldn't remember where I was reading this, but somebody, and maybe it wasn't Luther. If Luther didn't say he should have, but it was it was uh, somebody I was reading and they drew my eye and said, you know, I never thought of that before. And again, the, the comfort that, that it can bring. Okay, Ruth? Right. We're going to get to that. You're, you're, you're one step ahead of me, which doesn't surprise me. But we're going we're to we're get to this in just a moment. Uh, there's there's a, yet a third application to this that we'll talk about. But at any rate, I, I, I think there's a lot more here than just, you know, a narrative of what happened. I think it has a lot of potential and especially comforting application. Uh, for us and for a lot of people. Now, the third application that Ruth was getting us to here, obviously, is that this is, this in this case, well, both cases, but especially here when we look at John the Baptist, is a human life through whom God works and therefore has great value in the sight of God. I'll just tell you that in the Greek... There is the word that is used here for um, this child, in this case, John the Baptist, the word that is used for baby, you can look it up there, but, is brephe. Brephe in Greek is used of children who are unborn and children who are born. Infants. But it specifically is infants when it's a child that is born. Okay. It is used in, for example, Luke 2 verses 12 and Luke 2 16 to refer to Jesus after he is born. It is used here to refer to John the Baptist who is unborn. In Luke 18, it is specifically used that they were bringing infants to Jesus and the disciples tried to rebuke them and send them away because back at that time, it sounds kind of cruel to us today, But rabbis back in that day didn't spend any time with children. That was a waste of time. They they wouldn't be bothered. And here, Jesus, exact opposite. Let them come to me. Why? Because to such belongs the kingdom of God. Right? So, brephe is the word that is used here. I want to just, and again, I don't want to make the whole uh, time on this, but... We see in, on the part of those who would be proponents of abortion today to use different language when they talk about what's an unborn child yet. What's the term that's usually used? Fetus, correct. Uh, I don't know if some of you may remember Dr. Jean Garton, who was uh, LCMs, uh, actually wife of an LCMS pastor. Uh, her, her husband served many years in uh, uh, Pennsylvania, I think it is. Anyway, she, she passed away. She's been gone. I think she passed away in the early 2000s. But she wrote a book. You can still get it on, online. Who broke the baby? Who broke the baby? And in that book, she takes a real look at the language that is used and the language that has been used to differentiate and, and, you know, have the abortion arguments seem more appealing to people, basically. You know, you change the terminology. And all of a sudden it looks it looks a little more acceptable to people. The Greek does not do that. It's the same word we would we would if we were using it, we would say that the brefe is an unborn unborn child and brefe after birth is an infant. Now there's an, yet another word, paiduo for, for a child of any type, but usually only born children are called paiduo. So that's kind of interesting. The Greek does not Mess around with different terms. You're a brefe before you're born. You're a brefe when you're an infant. And here, that word is used here of the unborn John the Baptist. Okay? All right. Um, Now, let's continue. Uh, 42, um, there's a word that's used there that she cries out. Let's see the translation is. Uh, that she, let's see, and she exclaimed with a loud cry. The Greek word for that, exclaim, actually means to intone something. So we think she very well could have been actually singing this, putting this to music, uh, lyrically. And uh, it's kind of interesting that um, the Blessed, the translation again, there's two blesseds here, are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. The word in Greek for this blessed is used both to give praise to God. It's actually, it kind of transliterates a good word, (laughs) uh, praising God. And look at, keep your finger here, take a look at Luke 1.68, and we'll see that Zechariah, uses it that way. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. That should sound familiar to us from our liturgy. So it's used to, it's used to praise God as he uses it there, but also it can be extended to people. And when it is extended to people, blessed be, blessed be you, for example, it actually invokes the blessing of God upon that person. Now, what do we have in our church service that is a sort of a Latin translation of this Greek word that kind of does the same thing, that when the pastor says this to you, it actually invokes what it is saying. I'll give you a hint. It comes in the service. Benediction. Yeah, a good word, right? And by the pastor saying, may the Lord bless you and keep you, make his face shine upon you, be gracious unto you. Uh, it is invoking that same blessing upon you. In other words, that's not just a, uh, okay, one, two, three, the service is over now. That is actually, this is the way the Aaronic benediction, for example, that God said he would bless his people, right? Uh, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord look upon you with favor and give you peace. The other uh, benediction and again, we believe those words actually commend to the person what they are saying. And so, here, look at these verses. Yes. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. The question was the the uh, the older version of it. Lift up his countenance upon you. Kind of look. He's looking at you and, and with with a with favor. Kind of. We've just kind of tr- changed the translation. When you you know countenance is your your gaze at something and looking upon you in a good way, so we've changed it to look upon you with favor. That's frankly, uh, I use that one more often, and we you'll notice we've used it in our bulletins because of exactly that. We're afraid people may think, what in the world is lift up your countenance upon us? (laughs) What is going to happen there? So we've kind of have changed it and made it more a little bit maybe a little easier to understand. I don't know, and not just we have done that. That's been done in other areas, but let's look at. When, when, uh, Elizabeth says, blessed are you among women, she is recognizing that Mary has already received this blessing from God because of what is in, what she is carrying, namely the, the savior of the world. And blessed is the fruit of your womb because the divine nature itself has joined with the fruit of her womb. To the point now where Jesus, even at this point, we believe and confess, is 100% God and 100% man. It's not that Jesus, you know, when he got to a certain age, all of a sudden uh, there used to be a, a heresy called adoptionism that said that Jesus was just conceived and born as a regular old human being, and when he got to a certain point, God adopted him and made him the Messiah. And no... Uh, again, the scriptures uh, flat out would deny that, even even this, this verse is here. Carol? Uh-huh. Yeah, I'm not sure why that would be in italics. In your, the question was, there is the word is or are? Hmm. Yeah, I'm not sure I know the answer to that. Yeah. Yeah, it could be that, that that's a possibility. That's a possibility. That's in what, 40? Did you say 42? Yep, that's exactly right. Yeah, that's exactly right. The is and are not in there in the Greek. They're assumed. Yeah, that's that's a great point. Yeah. Uh, now, notice in verse 43 what I would call the uh, feeling of unworthiness that Elizabeth is expressing. When she says, and why is this granted to me? That the mother of my Lord should come to me. And I would, I would suggest to you that in the presence of God, or in the presence of this case of, specifically of Christ, that's about the only way we can feel, isn't it? Or should feel unworthy to, to be there and to be in the presence of our Lord. Uh, it made me think about, Divine service setting four, and we have that little longer confession of sin, and we're going to be going to the Lord's Supper. We're going to be receiving the body and blood of Christ. And I just photocopied the confession here. You've heard this before in our in our worship service. Since we are gathered to hear God's word, call upon him in prayer and praise, and receive the body and blood of our Lord Jesus Christ in the fellowship of this altar, let us first consider our unworthiness, right? And we're, again, doing pretty much the same thing, aren't we? That, uh, in this case, Elizabeth is expressing her own unworthiness. You know, who am I? That the mother of my Lord should come to me. And and same thing we are considering as we come into the presence of the Holy God, about to receive, again, uh, Christ's body and blood in his presence, and another thing that we don't want to let slide here without saying it, where is, can you see here, a confession of faith on the part of Elizabeth? Where, where is? What is she confessing about Christ? He's the Lord, exactly. Who's moved Elizabeth to that confession? Holy Spirit, exactly, exactly. Same way the Holy Spirit today calls, gathers, enlightens, and sanctifies the whole Christian church on earth. First, we see this happening right here at the visitation. And so Elizabeth is making this confession of faith concerning Mary. And again, the emphasis, as I said before, we don't want the emphasis on Mary so much as we do with the fact that Mary is there carrying the Savior of all mankind, okay? Now, let's talk for a moment. I, I, it's probably a good, as good a place um, as any. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm going to make one more point. Uh, this is the fulfillment. Um, let's verse 45. Blessed is, let's do 45 first, and then we'll make that point. Blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. Who is Elizabeth talking about here? Blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. Is Elizabeth speaking about herself or about Mary? Mary, yeah. And because again, remember it was Mary who at Gabriel's announcement, you know, said with faith that I am the servant or the handmaid of the Lord. So she is referring here, we believe, to Mary and that word uh, Blessed that's used here is not the same one that was used earlier. It's a different Greek word, makarios, and it is only used uh, uh, toward human beings receiving a blessing. So Mary has received this blessing uh, of faith that describes people who are blessed by God. And notice there, it says that she believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her. That Greek word is the same one that Jesus uses on the cross when he says, it is finished, or it is fulfilled. It has come across the finish line, okay? And so Mary is blessed because she has believed with faith that what was promised is now going to be finished. It's going to come across the finish line, okay? And so uh, there's there's a lot here, um, to, to think about and consider. But I wanted to, just for a moment, this is probably as good a place as any, to talk about a little bit about uh, Mary and some of the differences we may have uh, with some others. Uh, I don't want this to come across as being uh, you know, anti-Roman Catholic necessarily at all. I, I will say this. What we were talking about earlier, about um, especially abortion and view of life, Roman Catholic Church, our church is one of the strongest allies we have in that. We are, we are very consistent together uh, in our view of all life as being a gift from God and that nothing should be done to either shorten or certainly take that life. But when it comes to Mary, we obviously have differences of, of belief and doctrines. First of all, we would say we certainly have the highest respect for Mary she was uh, obviously unique among all women in terms of what God utilized her to accomplish, right? To bring the Savior into the world. So we have a high respect and regard for Mary, uh, not necessarily for Mary's sake in and of herself, but again, what God utilized her uh, to do for all of us, for all people. And so we hold her in high regard, high esteem, uh, respect, and so on. Uh, we would not, however, say that there's no indication to us that three, things, three doctrines that the Roman Catholic Church teaches today, um, we just do not see them as scriptural. There is, first of all, the immaculate conception of Mary, meaning that the Catholic Church would teach that Mary was free, uh, has been free of original sin from the moment of her conception. And that was made a Roman Catholic doctrine officially in 1854. So we're not talking about Christ here now. We're talking about Mary. That she was born and was conceived and born without original sin. The only, you know, again, show us in the scriptures where, where that is. You know, it's just not, we don't, we don't see it. Another second one is the perpetual virginity of Mary. That she was uh, to translate forever a virgin. That after the birth of Christ, and we would we would agree that <laughs> with Christ, Scripture tells us right. In fact, she even questions, "How can this be?" And Scripture affirms that she was a virgin at that point in time, right? And Pastor Wade talked about that last week. Um, that ha- that was a doctrine that as early as six forty nine A.D was being discussed and, and finalized. And then finally, uh, there is the uh, assumption of Mary, the, the taking up of Mary, probably similar to what we would think of Elijah, for example, in the Old Testament. And it, the wording is this, that the Virgin Mary, having completed the course of her earthly life, was assumed body and soul into heavenly glory. And this became official doctrine with Pope Pius XII on November 1, 1950. So that historically is rather uh, more recent, although it had been talked about prior to that. But in terms of becoming official doctrine is more, uh, more recent. And you will even uh, hear some people talking about uh, Mary when this really gets, this whole area is called Mariolatry and it has really expanded over the years. And you will hear some people even using the term, uh, co-redemptrix for Mary. In other words, co-redeemer. And we would say, no, 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 no. There is only one redeemer. And although God used Mary in very uh, powerful and wonderful ways that, uh, we do not pray to her. We do not, uh, hold her, um, to be, uh, any of these doctrines to be, to be the case. That we just don't, if we, if we could find them in scripture, that would be one thing, but they're they're just not there, okay, so I wanted to say that because we're going to it seem like this is maybe a good time to say that. I don't know if any of you have any comments or questions about that before we move on, bud Yes, the Beatitudes yes, yes uh Macarius is the same one that we find in Luke or in uh, matthew uh five in the in the Beatitudes right right. Yeah, I don't, I don't want to get too far down the into right, right, this, but yeah, the uh, the logic goes something like that uh Jesus was obedient to Mary here on earth as a child, and therefore if you pray to her, she would intercede with him and have great influence on him even in this day and time. So we we but again we, we would say we pray only to the triune God, not not to any other human. Yeah. Yeah, there are yeah. Right. <laughs> All right. Uh, Mark? Oh, yes, right. Yes, thanks for mentioning that. We, uh, for weddings, uh, here, occasionally we'll get a request to do Ave Maria. And again, when it breaks into praying to Mary, we would say, I'm sorry, that's not, not, you can do it at the reception, I guess, if you want to, but not, not here. Or a Catholic church, Catholics do it. And that's, again, they're, I will say this, they're consistent with their teaching on that, so. Uh, but just not not here in the Lutheran service, I don't know who is first, Mark, okay, Carolyn, go ahead yeah, yeah I, I think i 'm not sure a lot of lay people uh, know the you know what 's actually happening there, and it, it is a beautiful song. I mean, the music is just so beautiful that I think people get caught up in that and they 're not really kind of analyzing well, what 's really going on here, you know what are we actually and in worship, of course it 's not just. The musical setting, it's, it's so important is what is actually happening here. What are the words? What are we either doing or what are we confessing when we do this about what we believe? So, Mark, did you have a better point? <laughs> <laughs> oh, okay, that'll be fine. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. The, uh, for those uh, on the radio, uh, Dr. Benner was saying he had a consultation on a wedding and uh, When when told that they couldn't do the Ave Maria, the uh, soloist asked if she could do it in Latin, and that that would make it just fine, I guess. So, all right. Well, that's a little comic relief here. Any other? Oh, yes, uh, Pam? Yeah, the question was uh, praying to other saints as well, and usually those other saints are, again, thought that they would intercede because they have a, a treasury of good merits that they could... Uh, call upon in the eyes of God or in the eyes of Christ. And again, we would say, no, we pray only to the triune God in the name of uh, Jesus. And it's only through Jesus that we have access to God and can come before his throne of grace. Carolyn? Yeah, it is. Uh, the comment was, you know, this kind of sounds like the purgatory situation. And yes, that's the the idea there is, again, you can do something and yeah, for your relatives, even in that case, but yeah, that was well again i didn 't want to get too far down the tracks on this, but I thought it was as good a point as any in this in this narrative to to at least differentiate and, and talk about how we view Mary uh in distinction from how the Catholic Church now, <laughs> all right let 's move we got uh we got uh, let's let 's do the magnificat or at least begin the magnificat. And this is verses 40 through 56 in Luke 1. And this is Mary speaking these words. Let me read it through, uh, first of all, in its its entirety, and then uh, we'll go back and go as far as we can today. Verse 46, And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant, and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever. And let me just uh, throw in 56 here. And Mary remained with her about three months and returned to her home. So, first of all, there are only a couple manuscripts that have Elizabeth saying this. The vast majority of the manuscripts have Mary saying this. This is the way we've always taken it. That Mary is the one speaking this. And, um, this is actually found in our hymnal. It's, and we don't, unfortunately, aren't able to do it very often, but it's in the service of evening prayer. Uh, if you're going to the, uh, 1045 across the way, uh, take a look at page 248 over there in Lutheran service book and you will find it laid out there. And because it's in evening prayer, we don't, as I say, get the opportunity to do it Uh, As often as we might. Uh, It is one of four canticles. We again believe this was set to music. It was not just spoken. And what I was reading is probably in Aramaic, or the poetry uh, would rhyme. It's not so much. We try to make it rhyme um, in English, or try to make it uh, lyrical. Look at these others. Zechariah's canticle is in Luke 1 68 through 79. That's the one that starts, we looked at that at the beginning of that before, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel. We have in um, Luke 2.14, uh, the angels uh, say, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. So that's the third one. And the fourth one, of course, is Simeon's Nunc Dimittis, and uh, that's in uh, Luke 2.29-32. So, sandwiched in here, we've got four of these. And remember, there's probably good reason to believe that what Elizabeth already has spoken uh, is also intoned or, or set uh, to music as well. Um, it, is, uh, it is compared many times, and we, won't have, we don't have time to look at it now, but it's com- this Magnificat is compared many times to Hannah's. Song of Praise in First Samuel chapter two. Remember when she is granted uh, the, the birth that she uh, had been praying for fervently, and breaks into song. Take a look at that sometime. There, there are some similarities there. There really are uh, when you take a look at what she says. First of all, the word magnificat. Where does that come from? Uh, it is the English word uh, magnifies that we see there, but in Latin. It's the first word in this song. Magnificat. Okay. So that's where it gets its name. Like many of our canticles, it's the first, uh, word or words that give it its name. So that's why it's called the Magnificat. Notice that Mary magnifies the Lord twice here, or praises the Lord twice here for his mercy. Uh, in verse 50, and his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. And then verse 54, he has helped his servants Israel in remembrance of his mercy. So it is the mercy of the Lord, first of all, here that she is magnifying him or praising him for. And the other thing that we notice here, and this is, this is a theme of Luke, but what is what is called the great reversal. That the low and the humble are raised up, and the high and proud and conceited are brought low. Take a look at verses 51 through 53, and we'll see this great reversal taking place. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. See those things coming together? The great reversal. The proud, high, and mighty are brought low, and those of humble estate, the the, um, uh, humble and uh, poor, are brought high. So how should we interpret these? Should we just interpret these on a purely physical level? At the high and mighty are brought low, in other words, they're banished. Or is is there also a spiritual component to this? Yes, thank you. The last shall be first, first be last. There is. We we could say both are probably a good interpretation. That in some cases, there are physical instances of Jesus feeding the 5,000, for example, when they're hungry with five loaves of bread and two fish. But primarily also, there is the spiritual component to this. That, uh, this is what the Lord does. Think about the ministry of Jesus, the three-year ministry of Jesus for a moment. What examples are there of the low being brought up? Can you think of any, bud? Rich man and Lazarus is a, is exactly, is it, uh, um, the parable itself is a reversal of fortunes, isn't it, here on earth? That's what I said. Yes. Yes. This is one of the first things that came to my mind. Who did Jesus hang out with? He didn't hang out with the rulers, right? The high the high and mighty people. Now, he, he, he certainly didn't shy away from the Pharisees and the Sadducees. It's not like, you know, I'm not going to talk to you. But think of how, how many times... He was eating with tax collectors, sinners. In fact, in Luke 15, they're murmuring in the background because he's eating with tax collectors and sinners. And then he he ends up telling them three parables of lost and found, the last one being the prodigal son who comes back, right? Shopping for apostles. Okay, and who did he pick to be apostles? Exactly. Yeah, so instead of, instead of uh, calling a great, powerful, worldly leaders to be his, his, he gets the fishermen, the tax collectors, and, you know, not, not the brightest and best, perhaps, and yet works through them. Yeah. Yes, leprosy is another great example, isn't it? That would be shunned. They'd be outside of the city limits. And again, Jesus. Uh, so we see this in Jesus. Ruth? Yes. Yeah. Using a child as an example instead of a great. Yes. Yes. Most powerless. Uh, but I think we're missing one really important one. What is Jesus coming as? A warrior on a mighty uh, steed? As an infant, right? An infant. He's going to be born not in Rome or Jerusalem. You know, in a backwater town that its only claim to fame was, it was David's hometown, right? So watch for this as we go through Luke. The great reversals, the proud being brought low, and the lowly being raised up. And not just with physical things here, we're talking spiritually as well. You know, It's the people that he calls to faith many times that the religious leaders of the day would say oh, don't waste your time with them like like children we just talked about that don't waste your time with them and uh or a woman caught in adultery you know don't waste your time it's just it, it, we see it repeatedly in the gospel of luke and mary emphasizes it here about the lord and the way the lord works uh, just a, a quick quote from uh, martin luther here just as a book title indicates what its con- what what is the contents of the book So the word magnifies is used by Mary to indicate what her hymn of praise is to be about, namely the great works and deeds of God, for the strengthening of our faith, for the comforting of all those of low degree, and for the terrifying of all the muddy ones of earth. We are to let this hymn serve this threefold purpose, for she sang it not for herself alone, but for us all to sing it after her. And uh, I thought that was a, a, a great quote. Uh, again, the, the praise is directed to God. She's not directing praise to herself. She's directing praise to God. All right, um, going on just a little bit here. we got a couple minutes left. Um, first of all, she magnifies the Lord. She rejoices. And notice there, who does she rejoice in? God, my Savior. And Luther has another great quote that Mary here is is just rejoicing in God, not in what God has provided her, rejoicing in God. Now, how often don't we rejoice, and this is Luther's point, how often don't we rejoice strictly in what God has given us, right? A new job, food, clothing, shelter, and so on. She's just rejoicing in God, for God's sake, right? Not not because of anything she received. She's just rejoicing in God. And I want to make one. What does she call God? My Savior. What does that tell us about Mary and the veneration of Mary? Yeah, kind of sounds that way, doesn't it? Uh, Luke is the is the only synoptic gospel that uses this Greek word to refer to Christ, Soter. But there are the the other one, Sozo, is used extensively in the other gospels as well. But, I mean, we can't pass by that without seeing that Mary herself says, God, my Savior, my Soter. Okay? Um, Now, uh, just a couple things real quickly, and then uh, I'll have to stop. uh, Verse 48, the low estate. And and I notice the uh, ESV has humble estate. Luther, again, makes a big point that we should be talking, not, not interpreting this as the humility of Mary, but as her humble estate or her low estate. In other words, she is not the societal upper crust here. Okay, She is of low estate. And I notice the, uh, the ESV kind of walks the, tries to walk on both sides of the street here by saying humble estate. And uh, commentators uh, looked at said, you know, it's really low estate, just so there's no confusion about what we're talking about here. Uh, Now, I'm not saying Mary wasn't humble, but I'm saying that here it looks like low estate, okay? Um, Another uh, part of the ESV I wasn't really uh, thrilled with, verse 49 For he who is mighty has done great things for me it should be to me is i would say a much better translation in other words it's not that mary is rejoicing that god has done great things for her benefit but he has done great things to her for the benefit of all okay so um there again there are choices that translators always have to make when they go through but again this would be more consistent certainly uh with our our theology uh, I'm going to better stop there. Um, we can pick up uh, next time at verse 50 and talk about what does it mean to be the, in the fear of the Lord? Do we see much fear of the Lord around us these days or not? And talk about that. And then um, finally, uh, there's, there's six verbs that come up in uh, verses uh, 51 through 55, and we'll talk about the important tense of those verbs and what that means in terms of what Mary is saying here, we talk about that next time and then we'll move on from there. Okay? All right, thank you very much. Let's close with the benediction. And now you know these words also invoke what I am saying to you. Now may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be and abide with you all. Amen. <music>